I actually remember where I was when I first, <laughs> I know this is like, sounds like a gag, but I remember where I was when I first saw the Ruddles and I, you know, I was over at a friend's house and I remember that like what the room looked like and where the TV was and, and I have a terrible memory. So it is kind of like amazing that, that I remember that. It's a funny thing here on Breakfast with the Beatles. If, if we play any kind of a Beatle cover song at all, the, the listeners get outraged. But if we play a Ruddles song, it gets the thumbs up. You do the Beatle conventions, you, you, you deal with a lot of Beatle fans. What's your, what's your impression with, uh, with these people? Well, you again, you, no, it's a big surprise to me because um, over the years, um, it seems that you know, Beatle fans have taken Ruddles music to their hearts. Welcome to this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. A couple of new news things this week. First off, May Pang has found a way to get her documentary released to theaters. She says she's got 500 theaters who are going to show it sometime in May, ironically <laughs> enough. Right. 500 theaters. That's good. I'm pretty sure it's not going to be shown in my town. Does Tyler have one of those theaters which sort of shows stuff on closed circuit? Not that I'm aware of. They have special showings of things, but I, I saw Peter Jackson's World War One documentary, but that wasn't a closed circuit kind of thing. But we don't have the date, and let's just hope it's on a date that most of us can actually attend. The only time we've been able to see it so far was last year at her Tribeca thing, where they screened it for, again, one day as part of their streaming. And no one managed to, uh, well, shall we say, obtain a copy from that, which is kind of interesting. That means there's more dollars to be made. All right. The second documentary we heard about is something that's a little bit weird. It is a documentary covering the week of John Yoko on the Mike Douglas show. John Lennon and Yoko Ono were Mike's co-hosts this week and with us on today's show will be Vivian Reed Ace Trucking Company Bobby Seale Marsha Martin Donald Williams Joe Harnell and the band and, and now, now here's Mike which I believe was two hours back then each of the shows was after commercials, somewhere between 90 and 100 minutes. Right. The whole series 
was actually available on VHS. The DVDs that you'll see out there are counterfeit. You'll see them on eBay. The last time most of us saw them was in the late 90s because that was used as filler material on VH1 back when VH1 was a music channel. (laughs) All those many years ago. It's hard enough to believe MTV was ever a music channel, but VH1 was a dedicated music channel for actually probably not that long, probably only about five to six years. There was some serious branding going on when music television became MTV and music kind of faded from that altogether. The name of the doc is Daytime Revolution. One of the interesting things I've always thought about that was that, no, they didn't actually film for a week. They flew in and out. They did, They would do one day, and then a couple of weeks later, they'd fly back in and do another day or two. And so it took them over a month to tape these five days. I did not know that. I assumed, like a lot of shows at that time, they would do two shows a day. Rather than just shoot one show, they would actually shoot one and then reset up and get in new guest stars. Well, and that may have been the case for the Londons, but they would have just done somebody else in the afternoon. It was done entirely around John and Yoko's schedule. Right. And also since John and Yoko were allowed to pick half the guests, it was also scheduled around the guest schedule. Right. And the title of the release is based on the fact that, you know, this was daytime television. It was kind of aimed at working housewives and that sort of thing. So the fact that you had Jerry Rubin and it was kind of a radical week. Bobby Seal, even Ralph Nader was kind of just slightly outside of what people were used to seeing at the time. Yes. Especially because he was up there espousing what we would call a green agenda these days in a time when there really was no such thing. That's correct. I guess he was just sort of getting popular with this is dangerous. This is going to kill your kids. (laughs) John and Yoko's week was really different for a show that was basically for Las Vegas singers and television comics. And well, and I hope they don't skip over the non Lennon performances, the Mike Douglas performances. They were pretty embarrassing. Him coming out and singing McCartney songs. (laughs) Right. Singing Michelle to John, and John just has to sit there and smile. (laughs) Well, at least it was Michelle. I mean, because Leonard had something to do with that. You know, yesterday would have been a whole different thing. (laughs) The thing that most people know is the John and Yoko appearance with Chuck Berry, where John gives Chuck a very nice introduction. You know, if you were to give rock and roll another name, it would be Chuck Berry. Yes. And it's indicative of where Lennon was at the time when he plays with his hero. I mean, truly, Chuck Berry, who was his hero. And Yoko kind of does her... Her thing all over it. Yes, all over it is a good way to put it. And Chuck Berry's eyes just go wide. Yeah. What the hell is going on here? It makes you think, did nobody tell Chuck? He doesn't look like he's prepared for it at all. (laughs) I compare that to the Hail Hail Rock and Roll with him and Keith Richards arguing about how you backed him up. And 
I'm Chuck Berry, dude, and this is the way I do it. And then to see that is just kind of like, huh. Julian coming on in that film and playing the footage and then playing with Chuck, that's a little bit embarrassing, actually. (laughs) It didn't quite fit. Right. We have that to look forward to, along with the McCartney documentary. Again, you got two documentaries that are probably going to be roughly the same length. One covers 10 years in time, one covers, even if they cover the ins and outs and what John and Yoko were doing while they were filming this show, that is probably at most about three months. Well, they may have to tour the country together, all three films. (laughs) The solo stuff. (laughs) (laughs) May's documentary does indeed fit reasonably nicely after the Mike Douglas, and we actually may get to see some of May in the Mike Douglas doc because she was there around as their assistant. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how tapes are kept in regards to that, whether there'll be behind the scenes stuff or not. There always are. (laughs) Seems that way. Anyone pulls any of this stuff out. Someone says, oh, well, at least I've got some photographs. I've got this little roll of film that I took at the time. And, you know, something always comes up. I had a Polaroid. (laughs) If nothing else, here's a dozen Polaroids that I took on this day. (laughs) John yelling at Mike Douglas. (laughs) But I had to put that coating on it, and I didn't really get it very well, so it's a weird-looking photograph. (laughs) Our main topic for this week, we're carrying on. We are covering the uh, Ruddles follow-up project, Archaeology, which really sort of started just after Anthology. Neil was at a Beatle Fest, and some people came up to him and said, okay, you know, the Beatles are doing this. What are you going to do next? And... Neil, being the brilliant man he is, came up with a really good project, I think. It's not the same as... As a soundtrack, not at all. In a good way, I think. You know, Whereas the soundtrack, most of the songs, I mean, you could go, well, this is kind of a parody of this, and this is kind of a parody of this. With archaeology, Neil kind of like had this palette and he'd go, I'm going to take a little bit of that, and then I'm going to put a little bit of that in there. And so you have sometimes five or six songs wrapped up in one thing, whether it's a drum beat or a guitar lick or a horn line. There'll be a new song. There are horns all over this record. Yeah, George Martin really did a good job on this. <laughs> <laughs> Archie. Well, of course, they, they said that Archie wasn't involved in archaeology. So <laughs> the other thing, Ollie Halsell was so involved with the first record. So Neil wanted Ollie to be involved. So he found some old tapes and used them as the basis of new recordings. The songs are great. There's not a Duff among them, I don't think. No, agreed. And again, much like Anthology, he came up with an amusing bit of fiction. Briefly, they say that when the Ruddles first split up in 1970, numerous songs and fragments were left unfinished in the wake of chaos. These recordings were then locked in a time capsule to be uncovered in a thousand years. At the time, Eric Manchester explained that this was done to thwart bootleggers and tax authorities. He furthermore added that the time capsule would not be open for a thousand years and that they would likely sooner be discovered by archaeologists. Fans thus dubbed these the archaeology tapes, which were generally thought to be entirely lost. However, on July 27, 1996, a press release from the band revealed that the tapes would be dug up roughly 974 years before the intended date of 2970. (laughs) Also preserved and buried in a time capsule, previously unheard Ruddles tapes, music that was to remain buried for a thousand years. Now, thanks to the persistence of one record producer, three members of the group have gotten back together. Ron Nasty was quoted as saying, things change, 
<laughs> that is the fictional story of what are these tapes. And that's all pretty clever. Really, Eric Idle has nothing to do with this project. Neil makes some pretty pointed references at Eric. <laughs> all the extracurricular stuff had to have been concept of somebody else. Just shortly after archaeology, well, I mean, there's the rather disastrous uh, Can't Buy Me Launch 2, the, the Ruddle sequel where Eric just didn't know what to do. Oh, well, I've got all these outtakes. And so he just brought in a lot of talented people to ad-lib, and some of it's funny and some of it's just stupid. Kind of like Eric's comedy. Ooh, it's the Triangle album. Oh, okay, Eric, yeah. And that surprisingly actually uses a song or two off of Archaeology, so I guess they must have made up a little bit. I guess Neil had to give him some credit to uh, go ahead and let him make the sequel. I don't know when some of this material was put together you get the idea that you know a certain song was used for a certain project but it wasn't like okay we're sitting down and we're going to do this album i think the deal is the fans went to neil and said you know hey what are you going to do he kind of went back and said okay well let's see what i got and i want to include ollie and so you know maybe we'll kind of do a little bit of a tribute to him a la anthology he found whatever tapes he had and then he flashed out those demos and took them to George. George kind of said, yeah, okay, yeah, these are your songs. Do whatever you want with them. It's all part of the stew. And then they went in the studio and actually recorded what they could off of them. But what I was going to mention was this was when Eric was riding high off of Spamalot. Yes. And so there's, there's a reference to it here, but there was also Eric went in, in Los Angeles, did about a week and a half, two weeks of test shows for a show he called Ruddlemania. He had hired the tribute band, the Fab Four, to come in and be the Ruddles. And then he also set up a multimedia extravaganza, a la Beatlemania, which was basically just retelling the jokes from the film. Right. But Neil wasn't involved in that. Neil was not involved in that at all. Right. So you had one Ruddles project that was kind of spearheaded by Eric. And then the archaeology project, which was spearheaded by Neil. And then Neil would actually take it out on the road. And at various times between 2000 and uh, his passing, he did live Ruddle shows. Right. Although it was mostly just him and his backing band. It was his material for the most part. So he was out playing his own songs. The Eric Idle thing is he probably just had a big enough head to think that, oh, people love Python. People love the Holy Grail. Look, it's not just about a missing mug. It's a metaphor. We must all look for the Grail within us. Somebody swallowed it. <laughs> Nobody's swallowed it. It's a symbol. <laughs> look, just go and find it. Maybe I can do the same thing with the Ruddles, which people also love. But, well, it never actually made it beyond the test shows. And talking to the Fab Four, he apparently never actually asked them whether they would have any interest in doing that. <laughs> Once again, it all comes down to money. It always does. <laughs> Part of the reason why the test shows didn't continue was the band was like, you know, we get so much a night to play our Beatles show, and you're paying us scale basically to come on and be actors in Rollmania. It's like, 
that don't work, dude. But they were still friends with Eric. Yeah, that's how a lot of projects work. You might play on spec, not make as much money as you could be making in hopes that the project will work out. But if it goes for a while and you don't see the potential happening and you can make more money doing something else, then most people will go with doing something else. Uh, And then it was also mentioned in the press release that Dirk would not be with them for archaeology because, well, he had gone into comedy. (laughs) so neil had no bitterness at all right even though eric didn't take part in the early recordings so the fact that he wasn't taking part in archaeology really didn't have an effect at all there are still songs that are clearly meant to be mccartney songs yeah yeah well and like i say neil did find a way to get at least some of Ollie Halsell. And there is something that I had found between last week and this. Apparently, Eric had actually wanted to do at least some of the singing, but you know, he had had appendicitis right before recording was to begin. Right. But I don't think he would have sounded anything like McCartney. That's the question. Is what would they have done with the vocals if Eric had actually managed to be able to do it? But A, that's how Eric lost all that weight and managed to actually look like thin Paul. <laughs> he'd had appendicitis and then b there's a quote from neil where he says eric came down he was hobbling he was on a cane well i'm ready to sing and it's like no right. ollie's here ollie knows the songs and you're in no position to sing the video get up and go eric definitely looks ill he's very gaunt so yeah he yeah. was not he was not in any physical condition to really take it on it just happened to work out that way which is probably for the best Eric can sing, Eric can play guitar, but I don't consider Eric Idol a musician. Nevertheless, make the most <laughs> of it. Make the most of it. On to the archaeology record. The album starts out in a pretty similar mode to the soundtrack. We get two definite parodies. Major Happy's Up and Coming Once Upon a Good Time band, which is a pretty good Pepper parody. And clever, you know, the thing that i noticed over the whole project is that neil has a obvious love for wordplay and so he pays attention just as the beatles on sergeant pepper you know it's sergeant pepper's only hearts club band but in the reprise it's sergeant pepper's is actually lonely the way the words are strung together right and so in this it's major happy major happy major happy like we made you happy so he changes it around in a similar way. I like the reference to somewhere in another universe. Of course, that was long before we were talking about multiverses. But as we know, the Ruddles are their own universe. <laughs> right. It's true. So as with Pepper, we then go into the Ringo song, Rendezvous. Yeah, that's a cool little song in several ways. They throw a lot of Good Day Sunshine in there. It strikes me that everybody in this song is their Yellow Submarine movie personalities. Do you ever come here with a friend? No, I've never found someone to share my rendezvous. Although Barry, while he starts out happy enough, he gets a little bit uh, angry as the song goes along. <laughs> right you know some of that's even a reference because uh it's like it's a parody of a little help for my friends and so they go but we're only trying to help you with your song but i don't want any help 
that great conversation between them. And when he says, I don't need any help, they go, oh, yeah, what about the middle eight? (laughs) It's a great little song and kind of deals with the Beatle personalities themselves, which I I like a lot. Hang on. Who are yous? It's not parody. It's almost just commenting on. Yes, you're right. Because it's not funny. It's cute. (laughs) Even at that, I mean, Ringo himself was going through the I'll sign stuff, I'll sign stuff. I'm warning you with peace and love. Don't send me anything else. It's going in the garbage or going into my private collection. (laughs) Maybe it's also kind of a comment on that. (laughs) Yeah. Although I think it's a little bit early for that. And this was really the start of the, we're just going to pick bits and pieces and throw them into the songs rather than doing a whole song parody. Yeah. And within the lyrics of, of really the whole album, there's, a deeper knowledge of Beatle stuff. Neil really puts in some things where he's like, that's a funny little reference that no one's going to get except you. Yeah, well, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Okay. So, so let me move on to questionnaire. Now, again, like a lot of these songs and, and I, truth be told, a lot of the songs on the soundtrack album, this is a song that had been around for a while. Neil wrote it for uh stage play that he did called the neil ennis's show public you know there's that name again as well right they've arranged it i mean it opens up kind of like food on the hill yeah with Uh, a little quasi recorder thing the song itself has kind of a i am the walrus beat then there's some cool lyrics that it's odd that it was completely written for another thing because it talks about the whole thing about do you think there's one true god or false god or no god at all yeah i think he may have added additional lyrics i mean especially the tell me what you think about how easy it can be to buy a gun Well, if he changed it all to make it fit, then that's one thing. But I thought, well, it's weird that he would have this song for something else. Normally, it looks like when he's writing stuff for comedy, he may not finish the song. He may just sort of write enough of it for what he needs. Makes sense. Doing a minute or a minute and a half. So he may have had to go in and finish the lyrics. Right. The thing that I find kind of funny is uh, he name checks Devil in the Deep Blue Sea, and this was a couple of years before George himself would do that with Jules Holland. Right. And that performance shows up on Brainwashed. It's like, oh, did George do it because he was reminded of it by Neil? Or or did Neil attend one of George's dinners and they all got out the... Uh, the ukuleles, the yeah. The ukuleles and, and played it. Who knows? So the next track is We've Arrived, and to prove it, we're here. <laughs> one of the songs which had been around since the original Ruddle soundtrack. Of course, it's... Uh, take off on ussr they do it on this album as an outtake you know it falls apart and then starts up again and we've arrived 
<laughs> Great note there. Right. One, two, three, four. But it's kind of about their arrival in New York City. And there's a lyric I liked. And it reminded me of John going, you know, we'll be lucky if we last a month. We could be big headed and say we'll last five years. And right. The giggling in their outtake is remarkably like the uh, Anya Bergen sing giggling. Oh, that note. <laughs> yes. They're having fun. They're laughing over it. It's obviously not a finished take, but it's something that he could rescue. And this would seem to be Ollie's actual voice rather than the sped up version of his voice. Really? <laughs> I mean, it's possible that they sped it up, but it doesn't really sound like it to me. And then it closes with number two, number two. Just as something to throw on the end there. That's what this does, is just take little bits and pieces of all sorts of things and sticks them in. Lonely Phobia, it's definitely kind of an early-ish ballad rocker. On Wikipedia, they say that they think it's a Hard Day's Night kind of tune. I don't know about that. There's something about it that reminds me of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, but there's that kind of flamenco guitar style indicative of an early song. And, and this is another one of those wordplay things where he rhymes phobia and hopia. You got lonely phobia, and I only hope you get better. The Spanish guitar is what drives this song. It's kind of things we said today, which is one of the ones that they mentioned here. But I actually think it's probably a little bit more I Me Mine. That's the thing. He's done a great job of putting things in there that sound like something, but you can't go, well, that's this. You know, it's just kind of of an era, of a style. And then again, going by what they say on Wikipedia, and I hear it a little bit, Deliver Your Children from Wings. It's like, yeah, I can kind of hear that. Because it's that same kind of guitar. Next up, Unfinished Words, which was based on Martin Lewis. You remember Martin Lewis? Yeah, they were, they were a great comedy team in the 1950s. <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> yes, yes. He's a writer. He was a Beetlefest guy for a long time, and then he fell out of favor. Right. But he was a kind of a journalist in the music papers. And sometime in the early 70s, he wrote an article about this lost cash of Beatles songs and and he made up a bunch of titles right all completely made up which every one of them ends up in this song bootleggers were desperately looking for these titles for many years and they ended up as titles of lots of lots of plain cover xerox covered bootlegs in the early 70s right indian rope trick and pink litmus paper shirt right but the weird thing is that in this article he credits the songs to certain Beatles, you know, that George Harrison wrote Peak Lipless Paper Shirt, and McCartney wrote a song called Deck Chair. But he credits Lennon with Colliding Circles, which later is kind of a Harrison song. I guess my point is he clearly had some inkling of something. Maybe he didn't know what he had. 
the references in this song are are pretty priceless. Yeah. Pink litmus paper shirt turning blue. He also references cheese and onions. He falls into referencing his own history. Yes. I mean, you know, it's, it's a little bit glass onion in that way. Yes, exactly. And it's a good song. Piano and guitar based. It sounds like a Lennon tune. But not any one in particular. If you're familiar with the Dukes of Stratosphere. XTC. XTC. There's a similarity between the way Partridge and Molding approached that era of music and this. You could go, well, that's Lennon or that's Brian Wilson, but you can't point to a song that he's ripping off. And that's kind of like this. We can now make that direct line since we've learned that Andy Partridge was a fan of Ollie Hazel. There you go. You know, they spent plenty of time listening to the Ruddles. <laughs> right. Probably in the company of an herbal jazz cigarette or two. <laughs> Track number seven, Hey Mister. <laughs> yes. Hey. The changing of the sections reminds me of Happiness is a Warm Gun because it's constantly changing the beat. The verses are in 3 4, and then the chorus is in 4 4. And, and here there's a fair bit of the actual get back backing, but it's not the whole song. It's just. Yeah, because it ends like Helter Skelter. But it's also very Lennon-y in that basically the whole song is about masturbation. <laughs> I've got a sodden cramp in my pinky. <laughs> right. I don't know why that would be Lennon-y. John will take any opportunity to <laughs> make a little dirty reference if he can. Yes. And uh, they actually mentioned Get Up and Go in the lyrics of the song. Right. And coming clean. <laughs> and a Jehovah's Witness ringing your bell. I don't know what that's in reference to, but... I find it funny. Well, maybe it was when Jesus showed up at the fixing the hole. <laughs> there you go. So we move on to the second Barry Wom, the second Ringo song of the album. So I guess they're doing a little yesterday and today here. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> that's the parody. Yesterday and today. Easy listening. Yeah, it's got a cool, funny words. And it sounds very Ringo-y in that, you know, you have that solid Lennon McCartney Harmony support. The guitar backing is much more act naturally than any of the other Ringo songs we've had so far. Right. Dun, 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 Yeah. He mentions, why don't we do it in the middle of the road? <laughs> Again, a McCartney reference, which, of course, now is made even more relevant because of Get Back, the, the monkeys. <laughs> Although Peter Jackson was afraid to talk about the one monkey really opening up the other monkey <laughs> fun stuff yeah look that up <laughs> you gotta have the actual nagras it's not in get back <laughs> peter jackson chose to make a well peter jackson or someone at disney chose to make just the smallest of edits there well or maybe in 2025 we'll get a documentary on the monkey <laughs> that's it they'll find the monkey's grandchildren yeah. 
Yes. So somewhere in Rishikesh is the grandchild of the monkey that was doing it in the middle of the road. Probably not a grandchild, probably an entire colony of monkeys. Track number nine, Now She's Left You. This is a movie song, whether it's Hard Day's Night or Help, I don't know. Almost an I Need You. But it's more of a McCartney-type song, in a way, you know. Melodically, it just strikes me as that. This is another one of Neil's old songs, and uh, he had actually originally done it in 1978 as a doo-wop song. Now she's left you. And you told her what to do Now she's left you Go and find somebody new You have my sympathy For she did the same to me Now she's left you, my friend Now she's left you Now she's left you, my friend Now she's left you now she's left you, my friend. Now she's you. Well, that's repurposing for you. That's pretty good. They may have had a version similar enough to this that he was able to repurpose some of Ollie's vocals and put them into this version of the song. Wikipedia says, I don't want to spoil the party. That harmony line is very much, I don't want to spoil the party. Track number 10, the Nicker Elastic King. It's very Lennon-esque in that it's a very long title. It's only four words, and one of them is the. But here's what gets me. It is clearly meant to be kind of a a Lennon-esque song, but it's really getting better. And it's a McCartney-esque story song. It's another day or something. It tells a story, but clearly it's supposed to be Lennon because particularly in the spoken part, it's Lennon's voice. Lennon. It's Nasty's voice. The price of raw materials coupled with inflation squeezed his global holdings his liquid assets bottomed out and shrunk his retail outlet operation i love that end bit there that's the story of the nicker elastic king and market forces which they then rhyme with horses for courses that it ends with the, the getting better guitar ending that's the most obvious thing because it's that chord with bongos and so it sounds like getting better but earlier in the song if you just listen to the piano that's what it's based on is getting better and the horns while not actual beetle they are very much sort of what people think of when you say the word beetle-esque it's almost <laughs> a rip off of, of the sowing the seeds of love horns <laughs> i can't think of any beetle horns which sound precisely like that but that's what it puts me in mind of. Right. Track number 11, I Love You. No, <laughs> I Love You Too, Ed. Not quite a smoochy eyes, doe eyes McCartney song, but in that mold. And I Love Her. It, you know, it's got the claves. And, Although, ironically, and, it's a little bit like uh, what the Michelle bit that they stole from Nina Simone, you know. I love you, I love you, I love you. The one that they don't say on Wikipedia that I think is, uh, I'll be back. 
it's kind of like that a little bit. Yes. I mean, there, there's a sound that would be like that, but that's because that's kind of that acoustic beetle thing, you know, I'm not sure it, melodically it resembles it at all. It's more feel than sound. I think you probably hit it with the Nina Simone thing. I mean, that's really where that's at. I love you. I love you. I love you. Track number 12, another long one. You can't say this is not a long title. Ina Kleina, Middle Class of Music. This is a brilliant freaking song. I just love it. I've put it on mixtapes. Lyrically, it's terrific. And you can hear it come together in it, obviously. Musically, it's cool. And the lyric is good, too. You got that little kind of false ending in there? The swamp piano, as it were. The grunting at the end, is that cold turkey-esque or is that hello goodbye-like? Or you think a combination somewhere between the two? Yeah. I mean, it definitely draws inspiration from cold turkey. He does that in his career. He does it, He did it on the revolution, on the single of that. He, he kind of grunts sometimes, and so it fits in perfectly. Then Wikipedia says that the Rhodes sounds a little bit like Maybe I'm Amazed, and I can see that as well. Track 13, Joe Public, which is, I mean, as we mentioned before, Neil had done a stage show called Neil Ennis is Joe Public, and there was a a short version of that in there. If you changed up the backing tracks and such, it would not sound like Tomorrow Never Knows. They're obviously going for that feel. And that really was before such things were common. The kids nowadays take the Tomorrow Never Knows backing, and they just go and loop similar things right you know that wasn't quite so much a deal in 1996 yeah i find that kind of interesting we get a little bit of the backward symbol so you know kind of like rain my name is joe public i'm sure you all know and lyrically it, it deals with class the the culture wars the class wars he talks about the proletariat and the great unwashed I get a little bit of Sun King in the feel. How much? <laughs> eh, just a little bit. 15% of Sun King? It's enough that made me say, well, gee, that's kind of like Sun King. <laughs> well, there you go. When we were speaking of nevertheless, it's like, well, there's no orchestration. That orchestration comes in here. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's a slight Indian feel. Yes. To this track yeah. as well. And kind of the, the backward vocals, the background vocals. So it's got a cool feel. I put my faith in the powers that be. Joe Public, that's me. Which actually isn't the kind of thing that the Beatles would ever sing. I could just see Lennon going, but I don't mind. Yeah, that's just that. <laughs> Track 14, Shangri-La. This is kind of a weird one. This is another one that Neil had had kind of sitting around and then decided to turn into a Ruddle song. In Shangri-La. In Shangri-La. In Shangri-La.
I don't know whether it necessarily works with the transition into the ending. It has a long fade out a la Hey Jude. Yeah. I don't know how well that works. Never have really questioned it because it's like, okay, so this is what's intended. It starts off a day in the life. Then you get horn rift, which is straight out for no one. There's also a Peter and the Wolf feel to it. As we know, the Beatles didn't come up with everything. Yeah. The lead is kind of Mr. Kite swirls around and there's circuses. And and that's why for me, the ending works because the whole thing becomes a kitchen sink, you know, um, Lottie Dude, you know, is obviously the Hey Jude with the Hey, uh, hey Jude chords, but they throw stuff in there like, you know, all you need is love and I am the walrus and, and Oompa, uh, Oompa, stick it up your Jumpa. Yeah. So I never really questioned it. It's longer than Hey Jude. It's like uh, seven and a half minutes. It just kind of feels to me like he stuck the two pieces together. The ending might have gone better with another song if you're going to do a Hey Jude parody. Perhaps. The back end and the front end don't mesh particularly well. You know, I'm not saying it's bad. Well, uh, it's funny you say that because I've always thought of Hey Jude, the ending is scotch tape on there. Better, better, better. Ah, yeah. You know, and it goes into something else. If you're going in with that opinion, then yeah, it works perfectly. <laughs> there you go. And this is the first of the songs where Neil is feeling a little bit grumpy. Uh, he quotes Oasis as whatever because, well, they were in the middle of their Oasis Neil and us lawsuit at the time. I found that kind of amusing. Yeah. So this was the song that they actually went out and did the promotion as such. And they actually did not a huge amount of promotion, but more promotion than you might expect for a weird little comedy record. Certainly a treat for Ruddles fans. The group has reunited to record another song. And they've done it at an undisclosed location here in New York City. A big secret. Excuse me. Uh, do you know where the Sony Studios is where the Ruddles are recording? Oh, it's in there. Oh, great. Thanks. And when the Ruddles reunite to make music history again, there is no doubt other entertainment legends want to be there. We have uh, bands like uh, Oasis and so on, and the Cranberries. But on the other hand, we have legends like Tony Bennett and Eartha Kitt. When was the last time you saw Eartha Kitt and Peter Gabriel next to each other? I often thought they were the same person. That's maybe the reason you've never seen them together before, but be tonight it. they will be together, brought together by this, the only band in the world that could do this. They made a video where they actually invited real celebrities. Right. That was after, uh, you know, Michael Jackson's big thing. Feed the world. Part All You Need Is Love, part the Hey Jude video. And they actually went up and played some of archaeology on the roof of the Hard Rock. The record company gave them a little bit more space in the dollars they could spend on promotion. Right. Track 15, Don't Know Why, which is pretty clearly Free as a Bird parody with lyrics that are fairly inspired by uh, real love both in the structure of the song and then in the way they chose to record it. You know, it's got that very sort of dreamy from a distance on an old cassette tape lead vocal. The pianos are right up front, though, unlike Free as a Bird. I always appreciated the way he pronounced weld and love very apparent in this. The weld. It references Norwegian wood, acid tests, but it's also really good lyrically, philosophical. McCartney-esque philosophical. Looking back with 2020 hindsight, we only tried to play our part. 
when selfishness is state-of-the-art, you've just got to change the locks on your heart. The final big message is true love turns out to be the stuff between hello and goodbye. It's, to a certain extent, Neil complaining at Eric again. I don't know why this has to be this way. It's, it's all just kind of meant to be a bit of fun, and here we are. Then the last track on the record, back in 64, it's another story song. It sort of reminds me of the current day McCartney songs where he starts to set his eyes backwards. Yeah, it's a cute little song. It starts off with the clarinets from when I'm 64, and it reminisces about their early story and even references the first, you know, the uh, all you need is cash. Thing. The background vocals go, there's no time for pouring scorn. Or scoring porn. That's my favorite backing vocal of either record. It's my favorite Ruddles backing vocal, period. But then they go, only tight trousers were worn. But it's cool. It's like, you know, nobody was fat. <laughs> Everybody was young. And then the grandchildren all fall off to sleep. I mean, it's a little bit, you know, Vera, Chuck, and Dave. It is. You know, I always thought it was kind of a, aimed at George in a way. Because it's like, the grandchildren's as why do you look so sad? You know, when you look back at this, why do you look so sad? And then you try to tell them about all the fun you had, but there's kind of this, you know, sadness about the whole thing. In fact, it ends with the line so long it's all over. It's a, the end kind of end to the record. Yes. The synth lead, by the way, is basically from six o'clock Ringo's record. It also is at least somewhat reminiscent of Maxwell. Right. And there's a mention of Benjamin Disraeli. That is Neil just throwing something in to throw something in, I think. Yeah. There was that period of time when on that era of British history was kind of hip. You know, it was the uh, that shop Lord Kitchener's valet or something. You know, everybody wore kind of Victorian uniforms. and Sergeant Pepper. Exactly. What's your feeling about the new teenage cult for wearing old uniforms? Among the antiques and bric-a-brac of London's Portobello Road is one emporium that specializes in selling these relics from the past. Lord Kitchener and all that. I was Lord Kitchener's valet. And there were a couple of bonus tracks which were originally only on the Japanese version of the album, but they've since been added to the UK. I, I don't know whether they've been added to the US version or not. I don't necessarily know whether it's still in print. The album itself is available on iTunes, Apple Music, uh, or Spotify. But as such, I don't know whether the CD is still in print. The bonus tracks, it starts with Lullaby, which is Neil being funny. Mommy's 20-something Daddy's over 30 Go to sleep, my baby And don't do that, it's dirty Right I took it as being kind of like a Cold Harbor demo It could also be taken, and the way I took it was kind of as a Her Majesty thing Yeah Here's a postscript. And it's just this little short thing. 
your mother's over 30. Don't do that. That's dirty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the second bonus track we talked about in the uh, last show last week, BBC will play the French version of Baby Let Me Be. Right. Funny. Again, slightly dirty. Yes. The third track is a weird one, which may have been meant as a tribute to George Harrison. My little ukulele. Well, it opens with Jailhouse Rock. Then it kind of goes into this ukulele song, very much George Formby. It's Ain't She Sweet. Yeah, I guess I could kind of see that. Yeah, it's that, you know, and references George's love for the ukulele. And you got the kazoo thing in there, which, of course, Paul loves. Right. It references cat call. They even mention it in the lyric. And the ing sound like John did on several songs of Tomorrow Never Knows. Well, yeah, we talked about that in Revolver. It is not dying. Right. So that shows up here. Yes. Then the next track, which is one of my favorites, not for any particular reason, but just because Neil decided to do a Star Club parody. Yes. Picking Cole Porter song. That's perfect. Kind of like doing Marlena Dietrich or something. So that's what the Ruddles were doing in the Rat Keller. Right. And it is funny because the lead is a bass solo. which And he calls out bass solo. Bass solo. And, of course, following the story, the bass guitarist sucked. <laughs> Was that Lepo? That would have been Lepo at the time, yes. So the bass solo is very simple. It's just like... It's just really not much of anything. Ron Nasty's dedication at the end, you know, this is for all the food you've eaten tonight. I love this track, and I'm glad that they decide to add it on here, even if it is just an extra. You add this, and you add uh, Don't Know Why onto the first record, and you now have pretty much the whole story. Yeah, that's what you could do. You could take both these records and start at the beginning and go through their entire career. The only thing that Neil missed is a parody of With a Little Luck. <laughs> in the ruddles verse uh, dirk was off with the punk floyd so there you go yeah where is having a wonderful christmas time having a wonderful christmas time along with the boil crisis <laughs> that's what the punk floyd could be doing but and then it closes with little medley they call rut a lot which as we have kind of already mentioned neil must have been thinking about trying to do a stage show Based on the Ruddles? Perhaps. Anyone here heard of the Ruffles? All oh, right, right, right. Well, this, this show within a show is, is called Rutterlot. And it's kind of a medley. And, and we hope to take it to Las Vegas, don't we? Yeah, we do, we do, we really do. Really, really do. Okay, so if you know any of this, do join in. Mm. People were proud in double back alley. Papers were loud, but ever so pally. People would shout, joking about the smoke and the soot. Mother would put the milk bottles out. And then there is the final Ron Nasty song, which was an internet deal. Although we have had a couple more songs from uh, Barry. Very warm and warm direction. I love that pun as well. <laughs> if you don't have enough of the real Ringo, go and look for Barry. <laughs> right. He owns a pub and he is writing and recording on occasion. Neil came out with Imitation Song, which really 
almost completely falls away from the Ruddles facade. Oh, from the Ruddles facade. Or even the Ron Nasty thing. I mean, you know, he says that it's Ron, but you watch the video and you watch the song, it it almost seems to me like it's Neil. When I watched it, I just felt like he was really trying to get the essence of Lennon. A solo Lennon? Yeah, absolutely. The philosophy, the view of the universe, and the wordplay. He manages to work reality TV into the lyrics of the song. (laughs) Right. And simulated sex and unadultery. I like those two being uh, shoved (laughs) right next to each other. Right. And then your favorite pun, poppy cockeyed world. Isn't that great? Poppy cockeyed world. It's a pretty solid portmanteau sticking two words together to create a third. That's Lewis Carroll and John Lennon. And the song John would have written had he been allowed to, to live. I can see that. The whole feel of imitation song. Poppy cockeyed world. We are family. I make believe in you. You make believe in me. I almost see that as just Neil being Neil. I mean, you know, again, this is kind of coming off of a little period where Neil had been ruddled out. Yeah. I can also see what you're saying, that it's almost kind of a, it's the song that John didn't get to write. But I mean, it also maybe Ron Nasty and John Lennon are are really sort of merging into the single entity in Neil's head. (laughs) Could be. I hear that, what's his name? The guy who played in the new Elvis movie, Austin Butler, says he's having a hard time getting the accent out of his voice and so maybe neil was having the same problems he was going deeper deeper into that rabbit hole boy he did it well i have to say that and i think i've said this before many times that archaeology is the best beetle album that they never made they wouldn't have been quite so blatant on the references but i don't disagree it is a very good record so okay the other miscellaneous stuff that uh, has been lying around so neil did indeed press up one more ruddles album they called the weed album it's very much akin to the actual anthology in that it's demos and if you want to see the writing process that neil had it's there on this record imitation songs on it too it was originally limited to 2,000 copies that he sold on tour but he did actually sell some more on his website huh. And he does have one really kind of weird track, which I guess does date back to the archaeology days, Evolution Number 10, which is someone reading poetry with the number 10, number 10, number 10 inserted in between. I mean, it's only about three minutes, but it's it's very definitely something he was thinking about. And it's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Their purpose was survival. Life was their achievement. They formed into groups. Some took to the air, some burrowed underground, and some returned to the water. The other songs that we didn't have before, Absurd Reductions, another just sort of very short interstitial, and then the demo version of Imitation Song, which we were just talking about. Two other things. Off of the original soundtrack, sometime in the early 2000s a bunch of alternative bands got together and decided to 
record a tribute album to the Ruddles soundtrack called Ruddles Highway Revisited. <laughs> I, I've never heard I it. I don't really care for it. <laughs> And no. Neil doesn't particularly care for it either, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of glad it exists. Okay. Someone's going to do a tribute album to the fictional greatest hits album of the Ruddles. Right. Okay. Right. And, you know, there's some songs which I like the treatment of better than others, but it is generally done very much in the uh, alternative style. The connection is one of the bands on there is Shonen Knife. Ah. Shonen Knife, whose lead singer at that point in time was going out with Sean Lennon. Beatle connections everywhere. There are connections everywhere. And if you like connections, listen to Toppermost of the Poppermost. Okay, well, I got the plug out of the way. (laughs) The other thing I wanted to mention before we uh, leave for the day here, there's a fan project called The Ruddles Lunch. Uh, If you're a fan of love, check this out. It is very much a mashup intended to be in the style of love. Right. And the game continues. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and first off, the fact that this guy could do it with just the two CDs is pretty amazing. He goes into exactly how he built all these mashups on the Ruddles Lunch webpage. Huh. Circle of Hay rather than uh, Cirque du Soleil. Not quite a top-notch level joke, but I'll take that. Yeah. As with love which kind of started with Giles doing a mashup of uh, Tomorrow Never Knows and Love You Too. He started with a mashup of uh, Joe Public and Nevertheless, and without knowing that that's what Giles was doing. And it's like, oh, well, this works. And so that, that inspired him to go on and ape the whole collection. That's funny. And it works. That's the thing. It's Beatle magic. <laughs> it, it is a little bit of Beatle magic. You can change the tempos. You can mix and match things. As with on the Love album, there's an I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is the studio version mixed with a live version. He kind of does a, a similar trick, although they don't have a live version of uh, Hold My Hand. It's, it's, the way he mixes and matches the uh, right and left speaker and doing a little bit of magic in pulling stuff out it's like wow that whole thing is on youtube that's 45 minutes and that does include items from both records amazing you know the only thing that's left is for someone to actually create a certain sla show to go go with with the lunch. lunch yeah and using only ruddle references don't suggest it to Eric. <laughs> Eric is still with us, and he might just do that. <laughs> okay. And then if you want to go deeper, but it may be a step too far, a bunch of people have actually created full-length Ruddles albums based on Neil Ennis songs and Flame songs and various other things that Ollie and John Halsey have done through the years. And some of them are more or less successful. There's your rabbit hole for the week. So those are on YouTube. The one that I like the best... And the one that is a Ruddles-worthy pun is their version of something new is nothing new. <laughs> I thought that was kind of clever. <laughs> I don't want to know what the Ruddles Dave Dexter is. <laughs> right. Nothing but reverb on the track. <laughs> no Ruddles music, just reverb. Just reverb. <laughs> so That sounds doable. All right. That is our look at 
the Ruddles archaeology and other assorted bits. We will be back next week with a new show. We will. Take care. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Discovered geniuses, or maybe he's partially discovered, but should be unearthed completely. I would say up there with uh, Chaplin and Steve Martin. Why isn't he Paul Simon? I have no idea. So it's an enigma. It's just a mystery to me. I don't know why it is. But I think it's maybe because he always wants to do something slightly quirkier, not something that's expected of him. He has this delightful corner of the playroom that he occupies and does his work in. And he's like, well, I'm doing this. And if you are interested, you're more than welcome to play. It'd be just delightful to see you. But really, I, I have no wish to, to venture onto that pedestal over there that you say is available. Tell you one thing, there's sickness going on, and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.